he never did any of that and he just cried all the time and if he got water on him he would start screaming like he was just being burned and if we went outside and there was a breeze he would panic and he would cry and he would try to crawl up inside my clothes and hide and they had an occupational therapist on staff and she was the one who diagnosed him with uh, sensory processing disorder which is SPD. We had no idea what that was but when she described it to us we were like check 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 that's Toby you know and um, but even knowing what it was I thought but I don't know what that means you know okay now we have a name but he is I mean literally every day we lost something else it was worse and so will this just keep going is there is there treatment will he Will we ever get him back? You know, it's it just, that's how it felt. It felt like he was disappearing in front of my eyes. And I had just lost dad. It felt like I was losing Toby. And it was just a very hard time. You're listening to the Refraining Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Today is Jennifer Shaw. She has such a great story to tell. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Thrilled to be here with you. We've been talking about this for a while and it's fun to share. Um, I am a mom of three in Ohio and also a singer songwriter and a speaker and an author. Um, not any of the things I thought I'd be doing in life, but God is funny. And um, so, yeah, I spend most of my time either with my family or traveling around telling people about the Lord. That's just amazing when I hear speaker, songwriter, um, all those things listed. But I will say that your book, which I have right here, and I'm going to show it to you right here. There. Everyone needs to get this book. And I'm lucky because I have an autographed copy. Her autograph is right there. So anyways, tell us a little bit about Life Not Typical, which is the book that you wrote that talks a lot about some of the struggles and you becoming who you are today. And I love the introduction where you said at about the age 15, you know, I'm kind of done with God. That was quite a brave question or quite a brave statement. Tell me a little bit about that. Where were you in life? Well, I grew up in a Christian home and my parents loved the Lord. And we were in full-time ministry when I was little. My dad worked for Young Life, which is a ministry to high school kids. And so that's actually why I live in Columbus, Ohio, because we moved here so dad could start Young Life here. And um, I grew up knowing God loved me, had a, had a very solid family, but I was always um, a little bit rebellious and you know, very artistic and the things that I was participating in. I really didn't know any other Christians. And, um, you know, it's a little harder, I think, in the arts community because there there aren't as many Christians there. There's not as much support. And by the time I was 15, I had some real goals in my life that I wanted to achieve. And, you know, none of them by the world standards were bad goals, but they just, I felt like, you know, if I had to make a big stand for Christian principles. And I didn't even know if they were my principles. I mean, it just seemed sort of like I'd inherited my family's faith. I mean, I think a lot of Christians who grow up this way would understand that. Is it mine or not? 
And I remember at 15 just being like, you know what? There's too many things I want to do that I think God wouldn't approve of. And so I'm just going to be done, you know, because I, I get to live my own life. And um, I really felt like my happiness was going to be found in being very successful and trying my best to just achieve everything I wanted to achieve. And so I went and worked toward that instead. And um, I will say it's a funny thing because while I regret a lot that happened at that time, I also understand grace in a way that I wouldn't understand. And I really, I'm hard-headed and I had to make my faith my own. <laughs> so when I was about 20, I was achieving everything I'd wanted to achieve. You know, things were going actually very well. Some people's testimony is, you know, everything fell apart and, you know, and I met the Lord at the bottom. Mine was more I was thinking, well, I've done everything I'm trying to do, and I'm still not particularly happy. And what would actually, what, what is that actual secret to life, you know? And I looked at my parents, and they had this peace and this joy that really didn't seem to be centered at all on their circumstances or their money or their success. And I thought maybe they really are on to something. And I decided to. Um, try Christianity again and and see if it really did what they were describing and nothing has been the same since but that five years was quite a time away for me you know a lot of times um, we can easily assume okay I'm going to come to know the Lord and or come back to him and things are going to be great and we love all of the promises in God's word and things seem to appear that they work out but there's a lot of time and space that occurs in between the lines of scripture. And for you, you talk about being raised in a Christian home, coming back to the Lord, and then having two girls, you're married, and life is going well. In your book, you refer to the Hilton Head experience as happiness before, happiness after, life before, life after. Why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about life before and then life after? I don't, you know, I don't want to diminish our life before because when I did come back to the Lord, I mean, I almost immediately met my husband who um, was a very solid Christian and has been such a blessing in my life. He was my first Christian friend. And um, we have been together now a long time, very happily, and followed the Lord very sincerely and actually felt like a lot of things in my life were just going beautifully. I mean, we finished graduate school. He got a great job. I got a great job. I was um, teaching voice at Cedarville University and singing with the Columbus Symphony here and um, just doing lots of things that I dreamed about doing. And I had two beautiful little girls. And But, you know, our faith was sincere. I'm not, you know, everything was going well. And I think the Lord was using little things at that time in my life to teach me how to trust him because I think he always will teach us what we need to know for what's coming if we're willing to listen because a lot of things were coming. And um, then we couldn't get pregnant. We wanted to have a third child and we were having a very hard time um, doing that and then finally did get pregnant and I was so excited. And then um, we lost that baby and it was um, a very dramatic thing because I nearly died in the process. Um, I almost bled to death. And so um, I didn't, it was like instantaneously in one day, I was like, wait a minute, like we're really not 
guaranteed tomorrow. We really don't know how much time we have. Um, I really could have just left my girls without a mother. Like it, it, everything changed um, as you begin to think about what what are we doing here? Like, are what are we using our time for? Um, what's the point? Like, what what is the meaning of life? Kind of a thing. And then almost immediately, I mean, I was still recovering from that. And my dad, who I love tremendously, they live about a half a mile down the street from us now. Um, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, which is always fatal. Um, and I just remember thinking, like, it wasn't possible. You know, my little brother was still in high school, and my dad was um, the most alive person I've ever met in my life. You know, he's just a very... He was a very vibrant, alive man. And the thought of him, he'd never even got colds. You know, he was just, he was a very healthy, athletic guy. And to know he was dying, almost I, I almost couldn't comprehend it. And so it felt like on a dime, our life went from this perfect life with, you know, everything going exactly the way we wanted it to a lot of grief and a lot of sorrow, almost um, to the point, times of, just being overwhelmed, feeling like you had waves of grief. You know, I remember hearing my dad's diagnosis and, and saying to my husband, you know, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, you know, because he was so dear. I can't imagine that experience because I haven't had someone close to, my, to me in my life be diagnosed. Um, well, actually, I have this last year, but in your case with your dad, on the heels of the miscarriage, what do you say to those who are in that kind of grief? You know, um, people ask me that all the time, and or or what did you do? And you know, um, my my booking person has been through cancer three times, and she says, you know, if someone quotes me Romans eight twenty eight again, I'm going to kick them in the shins. <laughs> you know, that's kind of true. I mean, what you don't want is someone to say, you know. Everything will be used, even though to good, even though that is absolutely true. I mean, I've seen that over and over, and it's totally true, but you don't necessarily want to hear it in the moment. Um, for me, in that time, uh, I just wanted to know people loved us, um, and I and I knew God was there. I don't know how else to describe that. You know, I I know not everyone has that feeling, and I don't know why God was so gracious to me, but I never thought he wasn't present, you know, and I, I knew, um, I think we learned in some other situations that even when we cannot see what God is doing, even when we do not know why we have to walk through what we have to walk through, he's a good God, and I can trust that he does have a purpose, and that maybe someday I'll get to see the purpose, maybe I won't, uh, this side of heaven, but I can trust that he does have one, and the fact that he didn't leave me alone. I mean, I, I know in the book I did describe uh, that day that I got that diagnosis about dad. Um, I was literally laying on my floor sobbing and not really feeling like I didn't couldn't even get up. You know, I, just, I had nothing in myself that I could do. And I opened my Bible at random and it was like the passage was highlighted on the page. It was for me and it was Psalm 42. It said, why are you downcast my soul? Why so discouraged within me? Give your, put your trust in God, for I will yet praise him. And I just remembered in that moment realizing, like, you 
this may be one of the worst moments of my life, but you are here with me. You know, you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You're not, you're in this moment and you're feeling this pain with me, you know, and then I turn the page in Psalm 46 that God is our refuge and strength and ever present hope and trouble. Therefore, you will not fear that the mountains shake and fall into the sea. And it was like in those moments, I just couldn't, I remember I stopped crying entirely because I was just so shocked that God was being so personal to me in that moment. And I mean, I'm not saying it was like this magical thing that happened every second of the, you know, like I never worried, but he just never left me without a sense of his presence. And um, that was really what I had to hold on to. You know, it's interesting as I listen, you mentioned several critical decisions that you made. And I think the sense of God's presence comes from some of these choices, which was to believe by faith that God was present and was with you and was involved in your every moment experience. I mean, that was a choice, even though things were so terrible. And then um, you talked about in the grief of it all, you calling out to the Lord in from those Psalms and finding that peace. I did a little study actually on Psalm 42 and 46. Those happen to be two of my favorite Psalms in all the world, I love them. But um, Psalm 42, although we don't know the writer, it's assumed by so many that it was David in a time of affliction, either um, in a son's rebellion or in his uh, persecution from Saul. But this one commentary says either in outward afflictions or in inward distress, we are to bring our minds and our desires to a full dependence upon God. And then in 46, it says to cease striving. I think it's verse 10 to cease striving and know that I am God, although everything is crumbling around us. Um, it was said that Luther, um, anytime he heard discouraging news, he would say loudly, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And that from that Psalm, he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. I had no idea about that. But such strength, the words of that first paragraph or the first line, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of, of mortal ills prevailing. Though everything around you was falling apart, you still were provided that peace. And I think those words are comforting. Tell me a little bit about how the song that you wrote for your dad came into being as you were on this journey, you're pregnant and he's diminishing in his health and you write a song. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, my dad was ill about two and a half years um, before he passed away. And um, I, you know, I am a songwriter. That's, you know, that's what I do. And so I don't always know where the songs come from. Um, sometimes I sit down with a real concrete idea. I'm going to write this concept today. And sometimes I just start singing a song. And um, I was driving up to Michigan uh, to sing at a church up there with my husband. And he was driving and I was laying there and I was just praying. I was so sad about my dad and I um, just started singing the chorus of well the very first verse of that song is called um, songs called Godspeed and the first verse 
was how I was feeling. And I was just telling him, this is what I'm feeling. And then so miraculously, I felt like he was listening to me, but just saying, you know, I understand how you feel, but you're wrong. Because what I was singing was, you know, goodbye. You know, this world is terrible. We're going to miss you. And I can't, I don't know how to say goodbye to you. And then he was saying, the Lord was saying to me, I understand your grief, but you are wrong. This isn't goodbye. This is um, goodbye for now. This is I'll see you soon. This is not goodbye because we will be together again in heaven. And that that's what the second verse became. And um, so we ended up making that song, and I um, played it at my dad's uh, memorial because I knew he wanted me to sing, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to, so... Um, we just recorded it and I did it that way, but I was so grateful because I was able to play that recording for him before he passed away. It was, um, the last night that I got to talk to him, um, because he was getting real oxygen deprived and sometimes he, he would just didn't understand you. And that night he was all there and I got to play the song for him and he was just telling me how it was so comforting to him because it's looking forward to heaven and so it was just a precious gift God gave us that's all well as I mentioned before I probably would cry when I read some of the words <laughs> and it does start with goodbye the world is not a better place you've torn an empty aching space in my heart goodbye I know that your pain is done your life in heaven's just begun but I'm still here that is such a tough place to be. Um, that that line isn't in the song. But um, goodbye, the world is not a better place. You've torn an empty, aching space in my heart, and I know your pain is done. Your life's in heaven just begun, but I'm still here. And then it seems here where you transition from that place of such deep grief to so not goodbye. For those who love the Lord, it's true. He has prepared a place for you and for me too. So not goodbye, no. Because I'll see you on the other side and there'll be your arms open wide and I'll run in. Okay, I probably can't sing the last paragraph. <laughs> I mean, say it. Do you remember how it goes by song? Um, I know the bridge is just, I love you, I'll miss you. Uh, but I'll see you again. This parting is not forever, so Godspeed, my friend. Okay, why don't you start asking the questions, because now I'm crying. <laughs> so you sang that at the funeral, and your steadfastness was obviously provided by the Lord. And then life changed again because of your the birth of your son. Um, let's go forward and talk about that. Yeah, actually, Toby was born while my dad was still ill. My, um, we lost that baby, and my dad was diagnosed. And then we, we were so lucky because almost immediately we got pregnant again. So, Toby was born, um, and my dad passed away uh, just a couple weeks before his second birthday. And so, really, all this was happening at the same time because Toby's first six months were fine. Well, he was a very difficult baby, you know, but, but they, he seemed um, on the whole to be fine. 
But then his behavior started really deteriorating and getting very extreme and frightening. And um, he never ate anything. That was like our first clue that there was something wrong because he would nurse. But he once we tried food, he would never eat food. And then he never learned to talk. You know, babies start babbling and then they start saying sounds and speaking. And he never did any of that. And he just cried all the time. And if he got water on him, he would start screaming like he was just being burned. And if we went outside and there was a breeze, he would panic and he would cry and he would try to crawl up inside my clothes and hide. And he really, by the time dad died, um, he was two, almost two, and he didn't have any sounds and he didn't communicate. I mean, he, he would, we knew he understood us, but he, he didn't uh, move, he didn't play. He didn't talk. He didn't um, touch anyone. He couldn't be touched. He wasn't eating. He couldn't go outside. And I didn't know what was wrong with him. And we were so consumed with my dad. And I knew Toby had quite a few markers for autism. But then some of the other markers didn't make sense with autism, you know, because he would... I, I knew so little about autism at the time, you know, really my only experience with it was like, you know, the movie Rain Man, you know, and so I thought, well, he he's emotionally connected to me, like I knew that, and he would make eye contact, and, and the eye contact was, and the toe walking, he didn't toe walk, and so I thought, okay, well, those were, that was kind of what I knew, you know, you look for toe walking, you look for eye contact, and he was doing that stuff, but then some of the other stuff was so bizarre and I just kept I just was constantly worried that they were going to tell us he was severely autistic and it just seemed like every month that went by it was like he was receding you know it's like I had my baby and he was disappearing yeah it was dad died and two weeks later was Toby's second birthday and we put him into a speech therapy program we didn't know what was going on but we thought at least we try to help him communicate and it was this very intensive, he'd qualified because his speech at the time was at the three-month-old level. And so he had qualified for this very intensive program. They had an occupational therapist on staff, and she was the one who diagnosed him with uh, sensory processing disorder, which is SPD, um, or sensory integration dysfunction is the other name it went by until just a couple years ago. And we had no idea what that was, but when she described it to us, we were like, check, 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 that's Toby, you know. And, um, but even knowing what it was, I thought, but I don't know what that means. You know, okay, now we have a name, but he is, I mean, literally every day we lost something else that was worse. And so will this just keep going? Is there, is there treatment? Will he, will we ever get him back? You know, it, it just, that's how it felt. It felt like he was disappearing in front of my eyes and I had just lost dad. It felt like I was losing Toby and it was just a very hard time. There are so many of us as parents of special needs uh, children and now mine growing older, um, young adults, that feeling of searching and not knowing and yet getting, I'm sure, a lot of advice, which is usually not asked for. (laughs) Oh, no one ever gave, yes, everyone gives you advice and it's so helpful, but... Some of it was helpful. That was me. It's a little crazy (laughs) making because it's like, you know, I live with them. I have a vested interest in helping him probably a little bit more than you can understand. (laughs) Yeah, people 
people would say to me, you know, have you ever thought of, and I'm like, well, gee, hmm, you give, just given this a whole two minutes of thought, and I've been thinking about this for years, maybe I've thought about that before, but okay. Yeah, I, I, I haven't thought of that actually, duh, yeah, you have. I have no interest in much, I will be eating, what? That's right. never occurred to me before. So the day of diagnosis, what was that like for you? Because I can remember that for me, um, a bundle of emotions. What was that like for you? For me, actually, I know a lot of people tell me, oh, that's such a devastating day. For me, it was like such a relief. I mean, I've been, it had been almost two years that I felt like I had I got to the point that I felt like I was sort of screaming at people, like something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong, somebody help me. And all we'd heard forever was, oh, wait, oh, he'll grow out of it. Oh, he's a picky kid. Oh, there's, you're, you're imagining it. Oh, you know, just let him get older. He'll catch up, all this stuff. And, and I felt like finally, I'm like, finally, because we had, you know, the opening of the book is a day on a beach that was not actually too much before his diagnosis. And it was, for me, like, just an epiphany. I was like, I don't care what anyone says. They're all wrong. You know, people have been telling me, oh, he's he's a difficult personality, or he's, he's just going to be a late bloomer, or he's just, you know, all these things. And I was like, you're all wrong. Something is wrong. This isn't normal. Because we, we went to the beach, and he... I realize now, knowing knowing he has sensory processing disorder, it was windy. It was a whole field of sand, very high waves that day. He's terrified of water. He's terrified of wind. He's terrified of sand. I mean, I couldn't. It was like he probably thought I was holding him over a cliff. You know, like how could I have made that any more frightening to him? And yet, you know, at the time, I just remember thinking he can't even stand here. Like he was screaming, panicking, freaking out. And I thought, this this isn't what a two-year-old does on the beach. You know, this just isn't normal. So for us, that day of diagnosis was like, yes, like we have something to work with. Now, my main concern then was on the day of my dad's diagnosis, I hadn't known before Lou Gehrig that there existed something for which they would say, there is no help, there's no therapy, there's no cure, there's no nothing, this is how long it takes to die. And so with SPD, I thought, you know, we didn't really get the what happens now, we just got the what it was. And so I went home going, well, okay, now we have a name, but what does that mean? Will he just continue deteriorating? Will he, is there therapy? What, you know, what does it mean? And that was the scary part. But the actual getting the, I already knew, you know, I'd known for a long time. I just wanted someone to tell me what it was. I knew there was an it. Yeah, just give me a title or just give me a... And then there are a lot of people that say, well, that's labeling your child and we don't want to put labels on them. To me, it's it's like saying that child has blonde hair and that child has brown hair. It's, it's a part of who they are and it frees you then to go and explore. And I know when we were talking, we talked about... Carol Kranowitz book, The Out of Sync Child. Yeah. And then the second one, The Out of Sync Child Has Fun. Such good books because yeah. you can go into them and say, oh, okay, I get it. That's that's what he's doing and here's some help. For someone who has just received a diagnosis and is in that place of, okay, great, now I know, but I'm overwhelmed. What, right. what helped you through some of that? I think the... 
Well, I was overwhelmed. I think the first thing that helped me actually was Carol Kranowitz's book because it was all that was out there at that time. And so I was like, wow, this is practical. Like it, it helped me understand him. And the example I put in the book that I love was he would about half the time, he would never cry when I parked the car at our own house ever. My park in the garage, and he and I would think, oh, he's happy to be home because he never cries. But about half or two thirds of the time, if I park anywhere else, he would start screaming, and I would be like, why are we screaming about parking? And then, and if I would say to him, because he understood me, I'd say, buddy, you know what's the problem? I don't get it. And he'd point at the trees, and I'd think, why are you scared of trees? This makes no sense. And it got so annoying, you know. After a while, we couldn't go anywhere, and I would, I remember. Sometimes I just get real impatient and I'd be like, I don't know why you're afraid of a tree. Who's afraid of a tree? Get over it and get out of the car. You know, we have to go now. What's the problem? Well, then I finally realized I read that book and I thought, oh my goodness, wind hurts him. And if he looks outside and the trees are moving, he knows it's windy. And so he was trying to tell me it's windy. This is going to hurt me because, you know, he's all hypersensitive. He's not hyposensitive in any Everything is too much. And so when he would feel wind on his skin, um, his therapist described it like electrical shocks to him. It felt like electrical shocks. So he's looking at the trees moving and he's trying to say to me, Mom, this is really going to hurt. Well, how bad do you feel that you've spent a year going, get over it. (laughs) Get out of the car. But then as soon as I knew, when I understood it, I could say, okay, I see it's windy. This is a problem. You know what we're going to do? I'm going to put your jacket on. It's going to cover up your sleeves. And we're going to put your face right up against my shoulder. And I'll run in with you. And we'll get it over real quick. And he knew I understood. So he could calm down. And I could do something practical that made sense, that helped. And then I didn't have my freaking out kid because he knew I knew. And I was going to do something about it. And I could help him. It just felt so much more proactive. I mean, it was like all of a sudden I was like, I get it. Like, I get what you've been trying to communicate. And he had been getting, he's such a sweet, easygoing guy. His personality is totally easygoing. But he had been getting so angry, you know. And I and I knew, I thought the frustration of not having any ability to communicate, understanding, but not being able to explain yourself, you know. And he wouldn't know as a baby that this wasn't how everyone experienced the world. I mean, this is all he'd ever known. So he's thinking, how come everybody else can walk around in the wind? You know, it just helped everything to understand it helped everything. It does help everything. Um, As you're explaining what you did as a result, when you figured out the trees, the wind, it's going to feel like a shock. To me, it's a picture of what God does for us. There are so many times that, so many times that I have thought, Laura, you you don't understand, you don't you don't get it, and yet he does. And when I finally let my guard down, he wraps me up in a big blanket and carries me through those situations that are so painful. And so for you as a mom, you're providing the care for him relates so much to how the Lord cares for us. Sometimes I I think if people could only understand, and it comes from having a child that's different and hearing all those, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? 
And then when you figure it out, there's a connection there that, Lord, you do that for me too. And you're so patient. Isn't that humbling when you've been impatient? Like, just get out of the car, come on. And then you find out, and it's so humbling to realize, I didn't understand, I didn't get it. Tell us about where you've come since then. That was when he was two. He's now how old? He's eight. He's in second grade. We had a very unusual, I think, story for SPD. But also, um, I mean, he—he he, when he was two years old, I've had many therapists at this point tell me that he was the most severe case they'd seen. Um, he started off at a school um, here in Columbus called Columbus Speech and Hearing. Um, they have a preschool, and he had qualified for that speech therapy program. And they were, the, they were the ones with the OT on staff. And I remember saying to them before I knew anything about SPD, I said, well, I don't understand why you have an OT, which is an occupational therapist. I don't understand why you have an OT for a speech class. And she said, oh, well, it's because, you know, eight out of 10, or I, I don't quote me on that scientifically, but it's somewhere around eight out of 10 of kids who have this kind of speech delay where they're delayed in production, but not in understanding. She said, um, eight out of 10 of them have SPD. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but okay. And we kind of moved on. And then I realized what she was saying was it's the, the difficulty in processing sensory input. As she described it, those kids, the last thing they're worried about is learning to talk. They're understanding people, but they're not learning or possibly the problems with understanding sensation in their mouths or keeping them from talking. So she said it's such a huge component of speech delay that they have this occupational therapist on staff and she works with all the classes and they use the sensory approach in their classroom because she said sensory approach will help every kid with SPD and it won't hurt anybody who doesn't have it. So she said, it's just a win-win and we use it. Well, for us, I didn't realize, you know, God had stuck us in the absolute perfect place for Toby because it was a completely sensory oriented program that first year. And it's an amazing program. I've realized now that not everyone has access to, for me, become sort of a passion to make access to help more across the board fair because we have unbelievable resources and most people living near a big city have at least some better resources but he was in that program for a year and even after a year when he went to um he had to go to the school district program at age three that you know the federal program is before age three and when he was retested at that time they told us at his new school he was still the most severe sensory case they'd had at the school but they also said that his progress was miraculous and they didn't they said they didn't think he should be possible like they couldn't account for the progress he'd made because literally in six weeks of therapy this is my story that i tell he was two when he started and he started therapy there's no drugs or medications it's just play-based occupational therapy and he went a lot and we had school every day and we had private therapy and we did it at home but within six weeks of therapy i'll never forget that night as long as i live i was reading him his bedtime story and then I would pray with him and tell him I love him and put him in bed. And that night I did all that and I said, I love you, buddy. And this is my kid who had never spoken and he turned around in my lap and he patted my cheek and it was 
super slurry, but I understood it plain as day. He said, out of the blue, just the whole sentence, I love you, mom, just the whole thing. And I, of course, started sobbing, and I'm like, you're going to terrify this child. Like, he's never going to say He doesn't like water. You so can't cry. You know, but it was like a miracle. It felt like they let him out of prison because he was so bound up in himself, you know, because he everything hurt him, you know. Food felt like it was cutting him so he didn't eat. The water felt like it was burning him. The wind felt like it was shocking him. I mean, he just was so terrified of his world. And it was like they let him out of prison. And by Christmas of that year, he was speaking in full sentences all the time. By the time he entered his three-year-old program, we still, he had he couldn't touch things. His muscles were really weak because he wouldn't touch anything or play. But he could go outside. He could talk. He was... Like, I was looking at him going, not only do I think we're going to get you back for us, but I think you're going to have a life. Like, I think you're going to have a real life. We're going to go from maybe you'll be able to walk on grass to, no, maybe maybe you something, like, maybe we're going to get back, you know, those first dreams we had for you. And so he started that three-year-old program, and he was there three years. And by the time he exited that program, he went to kindergarten as a typical. He's not even on an IEP. He finished all of his private therapies. They discharged him about three years ago. And now at eight years old, you know, there are a few things I can tell. He is an eight-year-old boy who doesn't like to be messy. This is not a big problem for me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> they told us he'll probably always be neat and I'm okay with that, you know, but he, I, I know, he cleans his room voluntarily. Um, but he's not, like, I don't see it affecting his life in any way, except that it's made him very compassionate. And he is very in tune with the needs of others and um, with differences in others. And I've, it's just so interesting to me to watch how God works and to see him take these things that we absolutely think are devastating and then to use them in ways that we would never expect. You know, even the way he has taught me compassion and shown me and my girls, you know, everyone would say, oh, this must be so hard on your girls. And it was hard on my girls. He got a lot of attention and it's hard to be the typical sibling. And I know there are a lot of your um, people out there who are saying, you know, it is hard on the typical sibling. You get, you feel like you've been pushed aside. You feel like you don't get any time. But I see how God has developed their compassion and their, um, just their drive to be just to everyone and let everyone be who they are and, and accept that God has made people all different and all equal in his eyes, equally loved, equally valuable. Just things that I wouldn't have thought of that he's blessed us with. It is those things that we don't think of beforehand or when when we are in the midst of suffering. But I think that's where the Lord changes our perspective. If we make the choice to believe in him, to trust him, to rely on him, to depend on him. In fact, one thing I wanted to mention is that, that um, in the Psalm 46, when he says cease striving, it's actually a Hebrew verb meaning to sink down, to let drop, and to relax. 
And as, as we close our time together, of course, your story with Toby ends well from a human perspective because he is doing better. And yet there are many stories that don't end like that. But God still brings us together and commands us to cease striving and to know that he is God, to let down, to, to just drop and say, Lord, I depend fully on you. Are there any other things that you would want to say as we wrap up? Well, I would just say that I would just say <laughs> that I've learned the meaning of life, um, that this for me, I think of as a refining fire, you know, as, as I think lots of people know, we don't grow without pain. I wish there was a way we could. Um, but you know, a refining fire burns away the things that aren't important and leaves what is essential. And when I look at life now, you know, with my dad's passing, with everything, with Toby, with with my experience with nearly dying, you know, I realized we really don't know how much time we have. We really don't know what we've been given. And yet we are here for one purpose, and that is to know Christ and to make him known. And so if we are after that goal, wherever God has placed us, I mean, it doesn't have to mean then that everybody has to go find a stage to stand on and proclaim it. It doesn't mean that, you know, God has put each of us in a specific place for a specific time for a specific purpose to do it you know Ephesians 2 10 says that he has given us good works that he prepared in advance for us to do that he has gifted us with talents and skills to do what he means for us to do these good works that he has prepared in advance and when we are following him in obedience and with our whole heart just trying to be who he has for us to be in the place he's put us we can trust him for the outcome. And, you know, I have so many family, just so many friends now of special needs families. I mean, because of all the years you spend in these schools, I mean, I have more friends with special needs kids than I have with typical kids. <laughs> I, I see, you know, my very best friend has a, an autistic son and a SPD son and a typical daughter, and her life is insane sometimes. And yet God knew that she was meant to be their mom. And God knew that um, he was going to give her what she needed to do, what she's doing in the place where he's put her. And, you know, I see other people who are going into workplaces where God has put them there. You know, I just think when we know the character of God, we can trust him. And he's a good God who loves us. He's very clear about that in his word. And so we can trust him with the outcome, whether we see it or not in the midst of all that's happening. It's the character and the nature of God that we place our trust in. Jennifer, I just want to thank you so much for being with us. As we do close, I really want to know if some of you have some places right now in your life where there is such grief that you need someone to talk to. I would love to visit with you or to talk with you and connect with you either by email or Facebook and Jennifer and her contact information is on our notes and you connect with her as well. I'm sure that she would be available and willing. I think we can wrap it up. Thanks so much for your time, Jennifer. Well, it's been my pleasure and I would love to hear from anyone who wants to contact me as well. Um, that's always 
a privilege and a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by today's discussion, I would be so thankful if you rated and reviewed the podcast. Share it on your social media and with friends who you think would be encouraged by it. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org. If you'd like to be updated on Reframing's activities and content, please feel free and subscribe on our website. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical health, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.